The text for our sermon this morning is Hebrews 7, verses 26 through 28. Hebrews 7, 26 through 28. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of oath, which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. I'd like to call our kids down front for their children's sermon. The last word, I won't ask you what it was, the last word of the verses that we just read this morning was the word forever. Now, for the past few Sundays, we have read verses that say that Jesus is a priest forever. This morning, we're going to learn about what that word forever means. And more importantly, we're going to learn something about Jesus that I think you've never thought about before. When we say forever, when we say it, we usually mean no end. When the Bible uses this word, especially when it's talking about God, the word means something more than just no end. It is true that God lives forever, which means that his life has no end, but it also means that God's life has no beginning either. All of us will live forever. Everyone who has ever been on earth will live forever. Whether they go to heaven or whether they go to hell, they will live forever. But that forever is not the same as God's forever. You had a beginning. You were born five, six, eight, ten years ago. But God does not have a beginning. God always was. God has always been. One of God's special names for himself is I am. And that word am means right now. 6,000 years ago, 60 years ago, 200 years from now in the future, God will still be able to say, I am. Like right now, Aiden is six. In six years, he'll be 12. And when he talks about being six, he won't say, I am six. He'll say, I was six. God can forever say, I am. So I hope that you can see how amazing it is when G the Bible calls Jesus a priest forever. This teaches us that before God created the universe, the earth, all the people who live in it, God the Father and Jesus, God the Son, already had a plan to save God's children. God eternally had a plan to create men, some He would save. And the ones God planned to save, He gave their names to Jesus to be His people. His church. The Bible says that Jesus has all the names of God's children written in a special book He calls the Book of Life. And Jesus agreed to come to earth as a man so that he could live, die, and come back to life for these people. Now that's amazing, isn't it? But what's more amazing than that is this shows us how God loves his people. When we say God loves his children or his love for them is forever, we have to remember that forever doesn't just mean no end. It also means no beginning. Now we all know that our parents love us, don't we? But here's a way to understand how great God's love for his children is. As much as your mom and dad love you, they started loving you when they knew that you were alive. You were still inside your mommy's belly. 
They didn't know if you were a boy or a girl yet. They didn't know what color eyes or hair you would have, but they loved you. Your mom was very careful about what she ate and drank because she loved you and she wanted you to grow safely in her tummy until it was time for you to be born. Now, before this, your parents didn't love you. Now, that's not bad, of course, you understand, because what I mean is they didn't love you yet because you weren't alive yet. There was no you yet to love. But because the Bible tells us that Jesus is a priest forever, we learn that even before we existed, even before the world existed, God knew all of his people by name, and he loved them all. Jesus was ready and willing to die for these people whom God had not even created yet. And this isn't the only verse that teaches us this. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, we read that God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, before he even created the world. And then the next verse tells us that in his love, God chose us to be his children. Now, if God loved us so much that he decided to save us before we even existed, then we can certainly be sure that he will care for us now that we do exist. If he loved us before we were born so much that Jesus was already a priest for us, then we can be sure that he will love us now that we have been born. Now, during the rest of the sermon this morning, we'll be learning more about this, so I hope you'll pay close attention. We'll pray, and then you can return to your seats. O Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, enlightening the eyes of the blind, and the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illuminate our darkened minds by thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be... We're going to read between the lines, so to speak. Instead of directly explaining the, the words and doctrine of our text, we're going to draw the curtain back and explain the doctrine presupposed by the words of our text. In other words, there's a concept already in place in light of which these words are written. So when our text speaks of Christ being ordained by Solomon to an everlasting priesthood, there's something that's presupposed. The Holy Spirit assumes that we'll have some foundational knowledge already in place in our minds. These words are not merely thrown out into the ether. They're building upon previously revealed truth. So when we come to the Scripture, if we come unaware of the framework into which the words are spoken, we'll fail to understand them and appreciate them properly. The doctrine that is presupposed by the words of our text is called the, the covenant of redemption. What is the covenant of redemption? Yeah, Pastor always mentions the covenant of grace, but what's this? Well, simply stated, the covenant of redemption is a covenant made before time between the Father and the Son regarding man's salvation. Now, my guess is you've all seen this before in your reading of the Bible. You just didn't maybe have a name for what you saw. Now, for some people, of course, it doesn't even occur to them because their reading of the Bible is, is too fragmented. They read little bits here and there, and so they fail to see the big picture. When God created Adam, man was in covenant with God. We call that the covenant of works. And under this covenant, 
Adam was promised eternal life if he obeyed God perfectly. Hosea 6-7, for instance, speaks of this covenant. Uh, God says, like Adam, they transgressed my covenant. Of course, those words don't make any sense unless Adam was in covenant with God. Now, in Reformed theology, we frequently speak of three covenants. The covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. And in a sense, we could easily reduce these all into one covenant. The covenant of redemption stands behind all of God's dealings with man. You see, the covenant of works proved that even in a state of innocence, man cannot stand apart from God's grace. In the covenant of redemption, Christ fulfills what Adam, even before the fall, could never fulfill. The covenant of redemption also stands behind the covenant of grace because it's the basis upon which it is built. Now, the scriptural testimony to this covenant is rich. Christ speaks of the covenant of redemption in Luke chapter 22 and verse 29. His literal words are, I engage to you by covenant a kingdom, just as my Father engaged to me by covenant. So in these words, Christ promises us the kingdom by, by virtue of a covenant between Him and the Father. Last Sunday, we read that Christ is a surety of a better covenant. He's called the surety because He engages for us to God to fulfill what the covenant requires. He engages in our name with the Father to fulfill God's law for us. And having fulfilled it, He engages to the Father for us that we should receive the promised grace and glory. Last week, I also mentioned Galatians chapter 3, verse 17, which says that the covenant was confirmed by God in Christ. The contracting parties are God the Father on one hand and Christ on the other, unless we mistakenly assume that Christ is only spoken of as the executor of the covenant. Paul tells us that the promises were made to Christ himself. Paul literally says, to Abraham's seed was the promise made. And then he clarifies that because the word is seed, singular, and not seeds, plural, that the seed is none other than Christ. In other words, the promise was made to Christ. A beautiful description of the covenant of redemption can be found in Zechariah 6, verses 12 and 13, which reads, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, from his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory, and he shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Now that passage is a remarkable prophecy about the Messiah. Zechariah says that Christ's work is based on a council of peace between the branch and the Father. Many of the prophets call Jesus the branch, and they do so because he's a new root of a new offspring according to the promise. He is the second Adam, and he builds the temple of the Lord, that is the church. All of Christ's work originates in this council of peace, this covenant between him and the Lord whose temple he will build and upon whose throne he will sit as priest and king. The words them both, the council of peace between them both, 
The words then both refer to God and the branch. The text says, thus says the Lord of hosts. The branch, he shall build the temple of the Lord. That's the Messiah's work. So what we have here is an account of the Father and the Son agreeing to promote the peace of the elect and the manner in which it'll be accomplished. It'll be accomplished by Christ acting as priest and king, fulfilling the terms of the covenant, the council of peace. Much of the language of Scripture only makes sense in the light of this covenant. For instance, those phrases like, my God or my servant, those imply a covenant relationship. The heart of the covenant is what? I will be their God and they will be my people. God says, you are my servants. Members of the covenant, because they are members, call God their God. And our Lord Jesus used this same language himself. I ascend unto my Father and to your Father, and to my God and your God. Our text last Sunday presupposed this covenant. Hebrews 7.22 says Jesus has made a surety of a better covenant. Now there can only be a surety if there is a contract or covenant between the creditor and the surety of the debtor. The creditor must be satisfied with the surety and consent that he undertake this work. And the creditor must willingly obligate himself to the creditor to pay the debt. And so the only way that our Lord Jesus can be considered a surety is if there is a covenant between God and Christ on behalf of the elect. So when we think of the work of redemption that Christ has accomplished, what we're actually looking at is this covenant of redemption. The covenant of grace is when the Holy Spirit applies to the elect the redemption that Christ has wrought for them. So I want to analyze this covenant of redemption briefly this morning, and there are three things to consider. The parties of the covenant, the beneficiaries of the covenant, and thirdly, the duties or the work of both parties. The parties of the covenant of redemption are God the Father on one side and the Lord Jesus Christ on the other. And this covenant, of course, is sealed by the Holy Spirit. I think it'll be much easier for us to understand it if we just look at the execution of the covenant. Our texts for the past few weeks have told us that there is an eternal relationship between the Son and His suretyship. This relationship is rooted in the covenant of redemption. Psalm 110, verse 4, that Hebrews cites multiple times, tells us, or says to Christ, you are a priest forever. Now, if Christ has eternally occupied the role of priest for the elect, then he has eternally had the office of surety for the, the elect, eternally, before they were created. Secondly, the beneficiaries. This is the persons on whose behalf this covenant is made. Well, obviously, if God had never willed to create anything or anyone, there would be no place for such a covenant between the persons of the Trinity. So it's obvious that the beneficiaries of the covenant are the elect in Christ. Speaking of the elect, Jesus says to the Father, they were yours and you gave them to me. In a way that was entirely consistent with his own holiness, God ordained that the elect would fall into sin by their own free will and therefore need a mediator and surety to obtain for them the salvation unto which God created them. A surety was needed to satisfy God's justice so that the mercy and grace of God could be bestowed upon them. 
<coughs> excuse me, the father gave the elect to his son, and the son accepted them and became surety for all of them. He wrote their names in the book of life and promised to accomplish his father's will and good pleasure in bringing them to salvation. And now we come to that third consideration, which is the work of the parties involved in the covenant. Now, there are two sides to consider, the work of the Father and the work of the Son. And this work can be divided rather easily into three categories, the conditions, the promises, and the guarantee of the covenant. So let's first look at the Father's side. In electing Jesus to be the surety, the Father presents to him the elect and gives them to him that he may accomplish salvation for them. And therefore, the Father presented certain obligations to the Son and commanded that they be fulfilled. We find Jesus saying, The Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. This commandment have I received from my Father, he says in John 18. Now, the the commandments include the following. First, that the Son would assume a true human nature, but without sin. So in Psalm 40, verse 6, which is cited by Paul in Hebrews 10, Jesus says, A body hast thou prepared for me. The original Hebrew of this reads, My ear you have bored, like bored a hole in it. That's a reference to the practice of piercing the ears of a bondservant that's recorded in Exodus 21. The piercing of the ear signified the servant's body was voluntarily placed at the master's disposal. This teaches us that the son would have a true human body and that he would willingly come on behalf of his people in the form of a servant. Secondly, the son would be the substitute of the elect sinners. This means that he would remove their sins from them and take them to his own account. To accomplish this, he would place himself under the law, a law that demanded perfect obedience to gain the right to eternal life and the punishment of transgressors. Galatians 4.4 says, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. Thirdly, the father required that Christ would bear the punishment that their sins merited. Jesus says, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down on myself. I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. This commandment have I received of my Father. In Acts 2.23, Peter says, Him, speaking of Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Fourthly, the Father required the Son to fulfill all righteousness in order to make the elect righteous. So we read, By the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself. He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And lastly, the Father required the Son to make the elect partakers of this salvation, By declaring the gospel to them, regenerating them, granting them faith, preserving them, raising them from the dead, and taking them into heaven. Jesus says, and this is my Father's will which has sent me, that all of which he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Now God also added promises. 
to these conditions, and the promises are given in reference to both the surety and to the elect. The Father promised that God's good pleasure would prosper through the Son. Isaiah 53.10, When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The Father promised that Christ would be king over all the elect, both Jew and Gentile. Psalm 2, verses 6 and 8, Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. In Psalm 72, He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. All nations shall serve Him. The Father promised that the Son would have power over all creatures in order to govern them for the benefit of His elect. Jesus says, All power is given given unto Me in heaven and in earth. Paul writes that God has put all things under His feet and has given Him to be head over all things. To the church. The Father promised that Christ would be glorified in a way which would be observed and acknowledged by the creatures. Hebrews 1.3 we read, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus says in Revelation 3.21, I also overcame and am sat down with my Father in his throne. The Father promised that he would be the judge of heaven and earth. Jesus says in John 5, and hath given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Paul says in Acts 17, because God hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. The Father promised to him that the elect would receive all the benefits of the covenant of grace through him. Forgiveness of sin, reconciliation, adoption, Peace, sanctification, and eternal glory. Jesus says, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Romans 8, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And God confirmed, this is the guarantee of the covenant, God confirmed the promises to the Son by means of both the sacraments and oaths. So we read that he confirmed it to him by an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In Psalm 89, verse 35, once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. And in the context, it is clearly speaking of Christ. God sealed this oath to Christ by means of the Old and New Testament sacraments. And God assured him of this by declaring to him, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God was not only pleased with his person, but with his qualifications as surety and in his work of redemption. Now we turn to the work of the Son. The work of the Son consists in accepting these conditions, fulfilling them, and demanding the promises be fulfilled based on his finished work. Now, first of all, let's just think that of the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is both very God and very man. And as a perfectly holy man, how could he do anything but accept these conditions as an expression of his divine love? He willingly and joyfully accepted the terms of the covenant because of his love to the Father and his love for his church. Scripture bears witness to this 
As for instance, in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, which says, Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I said, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will. Secondly, the son accepted the promises. This is confirmed by the fact that the father strengthened him by the promises and seals of the covenant. In Isaiah 50 and verse 8, Jesus says, He is near that justifies me. Who will contend with me? Boy, that sounds remarkably similar to Romans 8.33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Because it is God who justifies. The Psalms and the prophets are full of promises that Christ will be strengthened to complete his work. The Father assured Jesus of the fact that his suffering and death was a perfect ransom for all the sins of the elect, that he was perfectly satisfied with his suretyship, and that he had merited complete salvation for all the elect. In Isaiah 41, verse 10, the Father promises Christ, I will strengthen you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. And you can see this in Gethsemane. When Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done, we read that an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Since the Son willingly undertook for man to God, God kept the promise to strengthen him for his work. Jesus clearly encouraged himself with these promises because in his suffering he anticipated the glory that was promised to him for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. In Psalm 42, 5, Christ says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. The Psalms abound with declarations of trust in God amid trouble, suffering, and death. And they're unique because the speaker constantly protests his personal innocence and sinlessness. These are statements that could only be rightly spoken by Christ. I frequently remind you that the covenant of grace is a unilateral covenant. That means it's one-sided. And that it is without conditions. God requires nothing of us but what he himself provides. Now the covenant of works was not like that. Eternal life was contingent upon perfect obedience. Adam broke the covenant. And this shows us that even a perfectly innocent, sinless creature cannot earn salvation. He's not capable of doing it. The covenant of redemption imposed the same condition of perfect obedience on the Son. And He fulfilled it. If a covenant contains conditional promises, the party that fulfills them deserves to get what was promised. The covenant of redemption is such a covenant. Since Jesus has fulfilled the conditions, he has earned the promises which were made to him and the elect. Christ clearly anticipated the fulfillment of the promises. In Isaiah 49.4, Jesus says, Surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. Now there are two kinds of reward. There is one of grace that is not according to merit, and there is another that is a just reward according to merit. In this reference to Christ, we see a contract that requires payment of wages upon completion of the work. Jesus completed what he undertook, and he has merited this reward for himself. Jesus had his eye on his glory as a prize that was set before him. Hebrews 12.2 says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. 
The joy was set before him on condition of submitting to the cross. He had this joy in view. So he endured the cross and therefore earned the right to the joy. And finally, this is all confirmed by the scriptures that point to his work as the reason for his exaltation. Christ humbled himself, therefore God exalted him. Isaiah 53, God says, I will divide him a portion with the great because he has poured out his soul unto death. Psalm 47, or 45, 7 says, You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. Philippians 2, 8 and 9 says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him. Now you may be thinking, wow, we've just hiked up the Mount Everest of doctrine. Can I say something important, though? Anyone familiar with Scripture is familiar with that, that word, therefore. The Bible presents and explains some great doctrinal truth and then says, therefore. And this tells us the doctrine is never, never merely an intellectual exercise. There are always practical applications and ramifications to what we believe. That's why we must be diligent students of Scripture. We will not live aright if, unless we believe aright. Having said that, I'd like to close then by pointing out some of the practical implications of this doctrine because it's the foundation and ground of unspeakable comfort, true joy, and holy admiration of God's glory. So here are some practical ramifications of the doctrine of the covenant of redemption. Number one, the salvation of the elect is sure. The parties, both parties of the covenant are mutually satisfied. The elect don't need to keep themselves because they're in Christ's keeping. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can anyone void a fulfilled covenant? O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Secondly, the elect don't need to accomplish their salvation or merit it. For that matter, nor do they have to add anything to it. In the covenant of redemption, all the conditions which were laid down were met by the surety. He bore the punishment, and he has merited eternal life for them by perfectly fulfilling all righteousness. All of Christ's merits extend to all of God's children. Thirdly, our relationship with God in Christ, the covenant of grace, rests secure in this covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. All of man's salvation from beginning to end issues from this covenant. Before anything or anyone existed, it, was all, it had already been decreed when, where, and how each of the elect would be saved by grace. Fourthly, this covenant reveals God's unsurpassed love. This is the heart of the children's sermon this morning. Think about the fact that you were the object of the eternal love and mutual delight of the Father and the Son to save you before you were even created. How can your heart not be filled with praise and wonder? God wasn't moved to include any of us in the covenant because of foreseen faith or good works. It was merely God's love and good pleasure. Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. 
We love Him because He first loved us. And lastly, Christ is the executor of our salvation. The Father has given the elect to the Son, and He will not lose any of them. Christ is all-powerful, and He is all-faithful. We saw that in our Gospel reading this morning. We see it in John chapter 18, verses 7-9. through 9. They asked Him again, or He asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am He, therefore if you seek Me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which He spoke, Of those whom you gave Me, I have lost none. Well might the people of God say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We trust in the faithful promises of the faithful Christ. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thou wilt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Let us pray.